0: Hey everyone, welcome to Propane Fitness Podcast Episode 9. This week we have Dr. Spencer Nadolski, who is a natural bodybuilder, medical editor of examine.com, huge resource on supplements, and also a family physician, so uh, this guy is a bit of a big dog. His website is full of nutritional information, see his work on examine.com. He's documented his bodybuilding prep on YouTube, which is pretty useful. And there's a little video of him doing incline press with 63 kilo dumbbells that I saw today. So we're pretty sure that he lifts.
1: (laughs) Hi, Spencer. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for having me.
0: Cool. So I wonder if you can just tell us about yourself briefly.
1: Yeah, just briefly, um, I grew up in Michigan in the States. And uh, my dad was a biology teacher, wrestling coach, football coach. My brother's four years older than I was was highly into fitness and wrestling and football and I got into it, got really into the performance aspect and by the time it was time to go to college, I was trying to pick a career and I decided to be a doctor and I figured all this nutrition and fitness exercise science that I learned, I could kind of take it and and use it for the general population to try to beat this obesity and diabetes epidemic. Went to medical school, then afterwards you go to residency. I chose family medicine. It's a little bit broad, but almost focused on, on that 30 to 40-year-old uh, population. And mm-hmm. implementing preventive medicine and fitness and nutrition exercise science, helping people get rid of their diabetes and lose some weight. That's
0: basically the gist of it. Awesome. I'm partially a big fan of Spencer's work just because for anyone listening that doesn't know, I'm also in medical school at the moment and have very much the same sentiment toward nutrition and being able to make that kind of difference ultimately. So very pleased to be on the call. We've seen some of the stuff you've done recently on the end of your bodybuilding prep. Mm-hmm. Um, so you tested your testosterone. You said it was um, relatively low. Yeah. Um, you can go over what you feel the role of calorie intake, fasting, fat intake is on androgens and sex drive.
1: Yeah, so this is kind of an anecdotal thing among all natural bodybuilders. They go through this period where they get their calories and body fat so low that they talk about their libido and everything kind of just disappearing. And so I figured, well, at the beginning of the prep, I was like, I'll get a baseline testosterone. I've had a few in the past just for the heck of it. And I actually lecture about why guys with no symptoms shouldn't get their testosterone checked unless they just are doing it for academic purposes because it can lead down to a path of possibly getting hormone replacement when it's not needed. But anyway, I checked mine anyway to get a baseline just for this documentation And Of course, no symptoms, but I had a good level of 600. I don't know what you guys uh, use as units, but basically, by the end of the prep, it was less than half of that, so it was 280, but very symptomatic, and beyond that, my free testosterone, calculated and also directly tested, was very, very low. It wasn't to the point where it's in the low normal. It was pathologically low, where a doctor could potentially prescribe me hormone replacement therapy. Of course, I knew that wasn't the case. So what actually happens in a physiological manner is that your body fat gets so low, and there's a hormone called leptin. I'm sure you guys have talked about it, but basically it's a hormone that's secreted by your fat cells, and it's also determinant by how many calories you eat. So once you're at the end of the prep, your body fat's low, and you're barely eating any calories, so it's kind of a double hit. Well, that leptin is kind of permissive to your hypothalamus and your pituitary, the brain, in in telling the messenger system that goes down to your testicles to say, hey, make some testosterone. So once that's so low, basically your brain shuts down and says, hey, we have to survive. You don't have enough energy to reproduce anyway, so why make any? That's basically the gist of it. I didn't think it was going to happen to me, just like, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm dieting so slowly and whatever, but physiology is physiology, and, and it happened to me, and I my libido was tanked, which it's never been like that, and it, it was really weird. You yeah, know, I never got, we talk about, like, morning erections and things like that in medicine when we're trying to evaluate for hypogonadism and you know I didn't get to the point where it's just like absolutely no erections if we're going to be specific and down and dirty about it but definitely it was noticeable decrease and the sexual thoughts and things like that were kind of disappearing it was like really weird so after the prep you know literally in a couple weeks I gained 10 pounds probably a good amount of fat we can talk about that. But my energy and libido are basically back. I have to go get my testosterone checked again just to see, but I feel back to normal already.
0: (laughs) Oh man, yeah, it sounds pretty horrid. And I think the fact that it was dropping to sort of pathologically low threshold, I can certainly testify for that as well in that I have recently dieted down for powerlifting to under 74 kilos, which is about 165 pounds for you guys. That was certainly the low end of what I'm comfortable being at. And everything you described had the same kind of thing. started to get very cold all the time, very Mm -hmm. food-focused, zero libido. And one thing I've heard, I don't know, I haven't really read into this, but supposedly oxytocin is one of the mediators of the drop in libido that you see from getting quite lean.
1: Basically everything, including, you know, thyroid... A lot of it depends on leptin, too. It's kind of one of these mediators that tells all your neurotransmitters and all your neuroendocrine cycle to work.
0: So, yeah, everything just plummeted. It's the same reason why women stop
1: getting their period, too.
0: Similar mechanism. And so did you find that the changes in the blood readings sort of correlated tightly with how you were feeling as well?
1: I didn't know how low it was going to get. I thought it would still be in the normal range, but it was definitely in the pathological
0: range, and it definitely correlated. We were at an Eric Helms seminar a couple of months ago, myself and Johnny, and he mentioned the Minnesota starvation experiment, talking about conscientious objectors that were put on a hypocaloric diet, quite severe deficit. And at the end of the period, all of them exhibited clinical anorexia, whereas prior to that, none of them had any of the symptoms. And it was kind of indicative that a two-way relationship between cognition and physiology, and that by artificially starving someone, we can then induce those kind of neuroses and thought patterns that are seen with eating disorders. And when they refed them, those feelings disappeared. And I certainly noticed that with myself in that, you know, right now I've been reverse dieting back up again. I'm no longer so bothered about the level of precision that I'm tracking something with or weighing out my rice or potato or whatever, you know, you do get into that kind of thought pattern. And the only thing I can really correlate it with is kind of how long you've been dieting for and just feeling at low body fat. So yeah, it's certainly not a nice place to be in. Right. Are you reversing up yourself?
1: I took the, I call it (laughs) anti-dieting. It's not reverse dieting per se. I am not convinced that there is what is called this metabolic damage. I know there's metabolic adaptation, but I'm fairly confident that now that I'm eating kind of back to my baseline of anywhere from 3,000 to 4,000 calories, honestly, it kind of ranges. I am tracking it. And I've put back on the weight that I lost, but I don't think I'm going to go past that. And I have a feeling that what I hope is that there are studies in the near future that look at competitive physique athletes because right now, when you look at kind of the literature it's not on you know competitive physique athletes it's you know normal dieting type of stuff, obesity or obese patients and things like that. I just basically went back to what I think is a prudent diet i didn't slowly meticulously reverse it and Maybe that's a mistake, but I definitely gained back some fat, and I'm actually okay with that because I do feel back to normal. I have energy. I'm not irritable anymore. I just overall feel good and still look good. I mean, it's not like I'm really fat. I think what happens the people that go back and gain more weight than what they started, I truly think that they're having an eating disorder. They're very food-focused, and they're binge-eating type of thing because, I mean, I had controlled binges afterwards. I'm okay to admit that because I could feel it. I'm like, yep, this is happening. Let me just kind of control it and at least track it a little bit. So what I think is going on is that a lot of these folks aren't metabolically damaged, but are binging
0: and not recording it. I could be wrong. And it's definitely hypothesis generating, I suppose. But um, very sensible. I think, yeah, there's not enough data, I guess, on kind of adaptive thermogenesis to be able to make any big conclusions on physique athletes. Yeah, I think with the binges as well. Certainly, when you get that lean, like I found I was absolutely unstoppable if you'd sat me down in front of a buffet or something, and it was, uh, yeah, it could have been pretty dangerous. The one time I
1: went out with my wife to one of her parties, she's also a doctor. We went to one of her resident end of the year parties, and at the end, they served the most delectable looking chocolate cake ever. And I was like, no, don't put it in front of me. But then they put it in front of me, and I was like, okay, I'll just take a nibble. And I literally, it was like, <laughs> I could almost see sparks in my brain, the neurons firing, and all of a sudden it was just like, I couldn't
0: stop. It was crazy. The uh, cake takes over you and then that's really it. So it's, yeah, it's tough. I think also when you get that lean for whatever purpose, I'm sure right now you're still considered by most of the population as lean, but it, we wrote yeah. something about this where the difference between walking around at like 6% body fat and feeling terrible and walking around at like 9 or 10%, yeah. Like the layman doesn't even notice a difference, but it so it only matters to you. And so in that sense, like it makes sense to walk around feeling a bit better, still being lean by most people's standards. Yeah, you know, it's really
1: funny. I was just looking at the pictures just from a few weeks ago, you know, not like at the show. And it's like, yeah, I was considerably leaner just then with some of the striations and I can pinch, you know, a little bit of fat on my stomach now. And I'm like, you know what, though, I I I feel so much better. So it's worth it to me. Anyway, I know some people say, hey, don't gain so much fat stay lean and just build up your muscle from there type of thing, reverse diet. But I'm not sure. I don't know. I, this is my first show, so I'm not an expert or anything.
0: <laughs> it's fun to walk around with a visible pancreas, but... <laughs> Seeing it secrete a little bit of insulin right when you have that piece of rice, yeah. <laughs> Those three grains that you've weighed up. Yeah, that's you right. Know, how do you feel about workout timing? And so the circadian changes in insulin and testosterone production and I think it's something on... People being stronger later on in the day at 5 p.m. Do you think that um, you should adjust when you train to try and match these or uh, just train when you can? Unless you're a professional bodybuilder, and really when I say professional, it's like
1: literally your life. I think you need to just train when you can. I mean, like, so for me, I know I feel the best around maybe 11 noonish, maybe even one o'clock to train. But my clinic schedule, I have to get up at, you know, like four o'clock in the morning, pound my coffee to get going, go do a quick, you know, workout. I have a garage gym that's built up and then I have to go to the clinic. That's basically if I wait till after work, I'm just going to be drained and I can't even work out. So I do think that there are personal optimal times. I do not think that any transient change in hormonal status during the day and you have these diurnal changes, I don't think that those would correlate with any better outcomes. I'm sure that you know if there's a study, I'm not aware of it, but if you were to be able to track when your testosterone and your growth hormone and all these different things are highest at one point in the time, I mean, your testosterone is generally the highest in the morning and it just decreases from there. Your growth hormone can kind of spike throughout the day, but... I don't think those little transient
0: changes will make a difference. So if there's a time you feel better, I would train then. But if you can't, just train when you can. So basically, rather than chasing hormonal patterns, just train when your training quality is going to be at its best.
1: Yeah, if you notice that you feel better um, training at a certain time and
0: you have the option to do so, I would do it. But I wouldn't worry about your,
1: you know, if, if you all of a sudden did one of these salivary testosterone tests and things like that and you saw oh, wow, my testosterone is this and that, and my growth hormone is this and that. The reason that you actually don't test growth hormone, you check IGF-1, is because of the diurnal changes and the transient changes. IGF-1 is a little bit more stable. So um, even if you could figure that out, I don't think it would matter.
0: Fair enough. Before we run away from testosterone too much, one more thing on that. Do you feel that the decline in testosterone that you saw during the diet was a function of, of calories as a whole and being kind of below your set point, as it were, or do you think it was to do with dietary fat intake? Because I noticed that you have um, you went through, you switched carbs and fat.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say likely calories. You know, as I mentioned, my fat intake was probably enough to support any type of essential fats and uh, to make sure I got all my essential fats and everything like that. My understanding of the physiology is that once your calories go so low, it's a matter of leptin and being, you know, your leptin gets so low that it's a permissive thing. You're basically shutting down your whole hypothalamus, pituitary, gonadal axis. So I'm pretty sure it's the calories, not
0: the fat. So like if you were to increase fat as a percentage of calories when they're that low, you're saying it wouldn't feasibly make much of a difference?
1: I don't think so. I'd have to check some of my studies, but what I would imagine is that my calories were so low, even if I switched some of the you know, carbohydrate to fat, it wouldn't have made a difference, just because my overall energy intake was so low.
0: Sure. So when you switched from higher fat to higher carbs, did you notice differences in your appetite and performance or anything?
1: Definitely performance. That was a big difference. I noticed that my first set is always pretty good. But my subsequent sets would suffer on the lower carb. Of course, I mean that makes sense from a glycogen storage standpoint. But it made me like go whoa, you know. Since I'm counting these now, I was able to stay lean without counting calories on a low carb diet, and I felt pretty good. But then when you start tracking and you just go, okay, as long as I keep my calories checked <laughs> and I can increase my carbs, then all of a sudden my performance is better. It's just all around better, especially with some of the metabolic markers that I got that showed that actually I tend to do better on this um, lower fat diet, ironically. so.
0: So you reckon when you were eating lower carb, you were just staying leaner because your appetite was lower as a result? Basically, I controlled for the calories by, you know, without
1: tracking, which is, you know, that's kind of what we want, you know, our patients to do. I don't expect my patients to track and count every single calorie and macronutrient unless they want to. Some of them do want to. So, you know, I did it for myself and it seemed to keep my weight in check and I was able to perform okay in the gym, not like I am now. Like now I'm very focused
0: and on my performance. But yeah, it kept my calories in check, must have, because I didn't gain any weight. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, you can't tell your patients like, all right, Mr. Smith, I want you to download my fitness pal and hit your macros within five grams every day yeah right
1: like there are some that will love that type of thing but it's in my experience anyway it's less and less we've
0: got a question for you about uh, xenoestrogens so environmental estrogens in plastics and uh, bpa and aerosols and things Mm -hmm. do you feel these are a legitimate threat to performance or body composition
1: you know i know some what we call orthorexic type folks who won't even use a Keurig cup because of the plastic and the hot water going through it. And people kind of give me grief about eating canned green beans because of the possible exposure to BPA and how it's chemical castration and all this stuff. Well, you know, I'm not going to say there's absolutely no danger, but a lot of the data we have is epidemiological, and it's just we cannot answer the question for sure. What I would say is, hey, if it's easy to avoid it, go ahead and avoid it. But if you're getting some here and there, you know, there's all sorts of different sources that we're getting hit from different angles. And who knows, there are different things that they come packaged with. So it's hard to know what's causing what, too. So,
0: yeah, it's kind of yeah epidemiological data. But ultimately, it could be the biggest factors are out of our control. And, you know, maybe they're kind of pollutants or something rather than the Tupperware that we microwave stuff in. Or Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I mean, honestly, like what I would say is, like I said, if you can
1: avoid it. And you're not going to harm yourself. It's only going to be, you know, neutral, maybe better. But I wouldn't worry about a little bit here and there Um, as far as we can tell. You know, it's kind of similar with artificial sweeteners and things like that. At least that stuff's been studied a lot more. But that's kind of my belief.
0: With what you said about getting your patients to kind of intuitively track calories or just keep an eye on portion sizes, we did like your kind of minimalist, simple approach for fat loss for patients of doing resistance training twice a week, and then is it thirty minutes of walking after each meal? Is that correct? Basically,
1: what I do is a lot of patients they don't go to the gym, and I say, and they you know they start putting up a front like, but I don't know if I have enough time. I'm like, I don't care, you know. Don't worry about the gym right now. I start them off saying, do you like to walk, you know, with your spouse or your partner or your dog or whatever? And they say, yeah, generally. And so I, I get them to start walking just around the neighborhood after dinner. And from there, you know, the goal is to just get as much as possible. If they can walk after each meal, that's great. 30 minutes to an hour, whatever they can do. And then from there, generally, their motivation starts increasing. They start asking a little bit more. But if they want a resistance training program right away, you know, I start them on the easiest thing you can think of. And I think you saw that.
0: Yeah, great video. Just saying basically do a, some kind of push, some kind of pull, and some legs each day. Yeah,
1: nothing crazy.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Well, there's a really good video, uh, one of these kind of stop motion animated things on YouTube called 23 and a half hours.
1: Yeah, I love that video. It
0: summarizes all the data on um, walking, just says, you know, the low basic fitness is kind of the strongest predictor of all cause death. And they looked at the comparison of 30 minutes of walking a day compared to a stent for cardiovascular risk and found that they had pretty comparable effectiveness, except for the fact that obviously the walking is so systemic. And just saying that, you know, that just by doing some of low intensity movement like that, you can ameliorate a lot of the negative consequences of obesity and metabolic health. So, yeah, cool. yeah it's really cool. I, it's basically what I prescribe to all my patients. <laughs> I think they're much more likely to adhere to that as well than if you told them go and do the Tabata protocol with kettlebells. Oh my gosh, yeah, I know, exactly. Do you feel that training for size is any different to training for strength, specifically for beginners and intermediate trainees?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Basically, with all this internet and Facebook fitness, I'm to the point where I try to just recommend very basic things that will just get them to actually do it so like you know the joke is do you even lift type of thing yeah there's a lot of you know this discussions and rants and raids and and everything on facebook and on these forums and kind of picking apart hey how many reps should i be doing for this and how many you know grams of protein should i be doing for this and it's like you're on facebook and you're not even working out do you even work out consistently are you program hopping? You know, I would probably defer the actual science of the rep schemes and things like that to someone like Brad Schoenfeld, who's really digging in himself with the research. But I try to keep it very basic. I learned it. I got my exercise science degree at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and, and one of the things we basically learned was, you know, those lower reps, higher weight was more for the strength, and a little bit in that eight to twelve range was for hypertrophy. But now we're starting to find that you need a <laughs> a range of all of it together to make for the best hypertrophy. And you can train for power lifting and also get strong at the same time too. And you can kind of mix and match like a four day type of split. Uh, I know that's kind of what uh, Lane Norton does and, and what I've seen Brad Schoenfeld do in his max muscle plan. But I'm so much more like, just do it, kind of like Nike, just yeah. do it. Because I, I, so many people just talk about it as opposed to doing it, and it just drives
0: me crazy. So the ultimate message, I guess, is just stop worrying about it, go in, just train in all the rep ranges.
1: Yeah, start with something and, you know, stick with it for a while. And, and don't just, you know, ask all these kind of um, analysis to paralysis type
0: questions. I'm writing an article about this at the moment, and I think it's very much in line with, you know, we're a big fan of Eric Helms, and he always talks about the cart before the horse idea. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs)
0: And, uh, yeah, I think you do see people kind of trying to optimize to the point of procrastination, and they're asking, like, how many grams of glutamine should I have per day? And it's like, you know what your calorie intake is. No, Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) yeah. So, guys... Unfortunately, Johnny couldn't be with us today, but he's left us a couple of questions to ask Dr. N. So he has asked, do you think health can be accounted for on a high level by preventing nutrient deficiency and maintaining a lower body fat? And do you give any credence to the idea that any particular foods are healthy or unhealthy?
1: I'm really into this whole flexible dieting type of thing. And, you know, I I do try to say you know, stick to this type, these qualities of foods. The the same qualities of foods, you know, good quality foods are what have been preached all along. It's not like, hey, carbs are bad or starchy carbs are bad because, you know, actually whole grains are good for you regardless of what, you know, the the latest diet guru will tell you. They may not be as good for a diabetic. They may do better on higher fiber vegetables, (laughs) I'm not to the point where any one food is bad, maybe trans fat laden foods, but you know, that's kind of being debated as well too. But I I would say if anything, one thing is trans fat type of foods that you get like at a fair or something where they <laughs> they deep fry an Oreo or something like that. But from a higher level, just, you know, staying at a low body fat, getting the focusing on food quality, I think the the other level to that is keeping your cardiorespiratory fitness at a, at a good level, too. Not just relying on only resistance training, but you know, I, I think for all-around health, you should get some aerobic training as well and make sure your CRF, the cardiorespiratory fitness, is high, too. But staying at a low body fat, getting the nutrients, not smoking, getting good sleep, if everybody could do that, the health
0: costs would go down big time, but that's a whole other issue. <laughs> uh, cool. So the, yeah, the big major box is being ticked and then uh, everything else should hopefully fall into place. <laughs> yeah. But, that's the idea yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, speaking of deep fried Oreos, I've lived in Scotland for the last five years and I'm guessing you guys have uh, got this kind of thing in America, but like they're big on deep fried Mars bars, deep fried pizza. Oh yeah. Start I selling yeah. deep fried butter.
1: Yeah, I don't even know how that's possible, but I I think they, like, flash freeze it, and then they do it. I I think that's how they do it. But, yeah, I've I've seen these at the fairs. I did get a – I think I got a peanut butter cup that was deep fried once. I was like, I have to try this. And I think I might have gotten either a Snickers or a Kit Kat or something or an Oreo. It was okay. I mean, I'd actually probably rather have just a regular Oreo, but – It was was definitely interesting. And and like I said, I'm not all about like, you must never have something like that. I'm I'm more to like, be flexible. You can enjoy it once in a while. It's not going to kill you, especially if it, it might be better for your sanity and psychiatric health.
0: So. Yeah, fair enough I guess rather than like putting individual foods on a pedestal and running away from them it can cause you to be we used to be very much the same and worried about clean foods and ultimately it just causes social occasions to be awkward and you're the weird yeah. guy in the corner eating like chicken and broccoli while everyone's just enjoying a steak and chips so yeah exactly <laughs> yeah um, so Johnny's also asked. I guess this ties in about gluten and dairy intolerance. Do you mm-hmm. think that this is um, an industry scare, or is it a genuine concern, or is it you know is it the case that it's supposedly more widespread than we think, or are people being hypochondriacal?
1: Yeah, you know the percentage of celiac disease, so where we know for sure that gluten is a culprit for disease. It was about one percent in the population, one you know I see different numbers every time I look around and the the same thing for this gluten intolerance, which is basically a non celiac gluten sensitivity or wheat sensitivity that causes these various symptoms, it's around the same you know percentage, one although I've seen it reported up to ten percent It's hard to really know, and then there are studies that show that those people that said that they were gluten intolerant, they really aren't you know they kind of go back and forth with these blinded studies. I actually avoid gluten, and I'll tell you why. The reason is is not because I think it's evil, but I myself have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It's an autoimmune thyroid disease where your body makes antibodies that attack your thyroid and eventually kill it off. And mine's basically dead because I'm on a pretty high dose of thyroid medicine. But there is a very small, not a ton, a small bit of evidence that avoiding gluten may benefit me. For other people, though, It's really hard for me to tell them that they should avoid gluten for health purposes. I avoid it. I don't think there's going to be any problem for my patients if they do avoid it. But if they don't want to avoid it, I don't think they really need to unless they have celiac disease or potentially this non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I'm buddies with Rob Wolf, you know, the paleo guy. Yeah. And I'm also friends with guys like Alan Aragon and uh, Yoni Frihoff who wrote a nice article about picking back at like the grain brain, Dr. Perry Mutter, and all this stuff. You know, there's a lot of scare tactics with gluten. And it's like, no, let's just look at the evidence and let's go from there. But I don't think you need to avoid it, but I don't think you'd have a problem if you did avoid it. That's kind of my stance. As for dairy, I love dairy. And unless you're lactose intolerant or have some sort of casein intolerance or something like that, I don't think you should avoid it. I think it's it's very healthful, and that's cardiometabolically, if you want to look at the studies, it's very good for you. Even the high-fat dairy has some good stuff in it, so I'm not against dairy at all.
0: Okay, cool. So basically, like, if you have a legit reason to avoid any of these things, then go for it, but otherwise, no need.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a
0: lot of people avoiding
1: it for whatever reasons, and I might be one of those people myself, but at least I have a little bit of a reason to, but... Gluten tastes so good. I mean, I've had some gluten free pizzas that are pretty good, but like for the majority of pizzas that are nice and big and fluffy with their crust, I mean, why would you want to avoid that? It's so yeah, delicious.
0: Can't beat it. It, it's a shame oh, that gosh. there's some kind of like wizardry that goes on when you put butter, flour, and sugar together. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely some hyper palatable wizardry.
0: <laughs> some kind of synergy that, yeah, totally agree. I think with the scare tactics, um, there's an interesting quote from the guy who wrote Freakonomics. He said, an expert doesn't so much argue the various sides of an issue as plant his flag firmly on one side. That's because an expert whose argument reeks of restraint or nuance often doesn't get much attention. Yeah. An expert must be bold if he hopes to alchemize his homespun theory into conventional wisdom. His best chance of doing so is to engage the public's emotions, for emotion is the enemy of rational argument. Yeah. And fear is more potent than the rest. I think that certainly comes in very relevant with things like gluten, where if someone said, like, you know, it's kind of bad for you and it might cause a bit of gut inflammation, that's one thing. But if they say, like, this will definitely, this is what's killing you, they're much more likely to be heard. Exactly. I'm glad you mentioned the thyroid thing as well. We did have someone ask about how you coped with that alongside the low calories during the bodybuilding prep. I tested myself. You
1: know, at one time, it was way out of whack. I mean, my TSH was, you know, not sure if you've learned endocrine yet in your studies, but basically, TSH is the thyroid stimulating hormone. It's the hormone from your brain that tells your thyroid to get going. And when that's higher, that means it's having a harder time to get your thyroid to wake up and and make actual thyroid hormone. I had a high level in the middle of my prep, but So because I'm on thyroid medication, I think what was happening is that some of the foods I was eating closer to my thyroid medication, and and it was causing some problems with the absorption. I got very lean, and I never really had trouble losing weight. The thing is, though, that confounds that is that I was on replacement. So it's the same thing with, you know, like guys that they can't natural bodybuild if they're on testosterone no matter what, because testosterone is not you can be hypogonadal and and not have a health problem per se like a, a lethal problem with Hashimoto's it's not lethal at first but eventually you can go into things like heart failure from your thyroid not working so it is I was allowed to use my thyroid hormone not in a super physiological sense I mean I got polygraphed and everything to make sure and I brought him a note and all my lab tests to show hey I'm within the normal range I'm not like Sneaking a few extra um, tablets of this stuff so i did fine with it but i know that it probably would have been way worse on me if i weren't keeping an eye on it you know um, and making sure that i was eating food later and letting my thyroid
0: medicine absorb so well i better uh leave you to it but it's been fantastic talking to you yeah i appreciate having me on i i love your site oh cool likewise uh, uh, Logo school and everything, too. It's pretty nice. Oh, awesome. Um, Where can we find you if uh, we want to see more uh, information about you?
1: Yeah, my blog, I I do a lot of blogging. It's drspencer.com, so D-R-S-P-E-N-C-E-R.com. You can also like my professional page, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. I'm on Twitter, I think, under Dr. Nadolsky, D-R-N-A-D-O-L-S-K-Y. Got an Instagram, same thing, uh, YouTube. And then also I have a blog with my brother who's also – he's an endocrinology fellow, former wrestler, bodybuilder-looking guy, DocsWhoLift.com, which we'll have to have you on when it's all uh, done and everything. Yeah, in yeah. a few
0: years' time, I'll be up for that. I've not actually seen DocsWhoLift.com, so I'll check that
1: yeah. out. It used to be our old blog, Leaner Leaner
0: Living, but we're um, kind of switching some things out
1: with that. So
0: Oh uh, Cool. Yeah, Dr. Spencer definitely uh, puts up a lot of interesting stuff on Facebook, some, some good studies and things on there. So be sure to subscribe and follow his stuff. Oh, thank you. Cool. So that's us for this week. Uh, tune in for next time. We'll be interviewing uh, Rog Law, JC Dean, and Emma Story Gordon. Not all at once. So, uh, yep, yeah, watch out for that, guys. And see you next time.